0: Hey, good morning, everybody.
1: Well, hello and good morning, Brent. How are you doing?
0: Doing fantastic. As you can see, my uh, I'm I'm older than most, so the grays are coming in really good. Uh, yeah. So the the uh, the quarantine beard's coming in nicely. Feeling pretty good about that.
1: Yeah. If there were hockey playoffs, you could call it a playoff beard, but ah, man, so no. you can't.
0: I can't. No. Mm-hmm.
1: No. No, sorry. No, sorry. Uh oh, we have um, we have an amazing guest here with us today. Uh, <laughs> yeah so so first of all yeah no kidding no kidding um <laughs> oh my goodness it's um welcome to the quarantine gang oh my goodness <laughs> um debbie Levitt is joining us here today uh, as you can see she's got professional credentials because she's in a professional booth uh, me i'm i'm from i'm broadcasting from my parents basement um, anyway, Debbie, give us a moment to, to give us a momentary uh, introduction of yourself. A little bio. Uh, tell us a little bit about you, and then we can we'll jump on from there.
2: Yeah, sure. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm Debbie Lovett, and I've been a CX and UX strategist, trainer, designer, teacher, speaker, everythinger, but not visual designer, uh, since the mid nineties. I think we all remember the mid nineties, the first time yeah. around. And uh, basically I used to be kind of a consultant to the stars. As I like to say, clients were calling me Mary Poppins because I would fly in, I would fix whatever I could in the user experience. I would sing a few songs and I would fly away to where i was needed next so uh basically i do a lot of ux and cx work i've got my own agency called delta cx which you can of course find at deltacx.com. um you can find me on linkedin and all roads lead from deltacx.com. you can also follow me on youtube where i stream in fact i'm doing a podcast after this one
1: <laughs> such and such is the modern life that so we we bounce from podcast to podcast <laughs> for sure oh and brent through the uh Ran through the uh, URL into and the, in the
0: chat There we go.
1: There we go. Thank you. Missed the missed the stringy stuff at the beginning. There, so.
0: doing the good yeah, stuff. Cool. I I think I should also give a quick shout out to uh, Tadawan Sudo who connected me with Debbie. She said Debbie is awesome, and you should definitely meet her to talk about this kind of stuff. So uh, she hooked us up on LinkedIn, and we got connected and had a great conversation. And I'm super excited to have you here today. We normally have instructional design people and other tech folks and VR folks. And we just recently started talking about user experience and user interface design I'm in the industry as a whole i mean i think a lot of us have kind of talked about it in general but if you were to go to an event of an instructional design event or an e-learning event there would not be much on the program for uh, interface design user experience design all of the design-ish stuff other than the instructional design and so once i started talking more and more with people about it, I realized there's so much overlap and there's so much that we can learn. And I think the jobs that we're asked to do, both groups, uh, to Tatawan's point, she says, we serve the same population, we're both helping the same people, so we should probably be working together. So uh, that's kind of where this all started and that's when mm-hmm. I said, got to come on idiotic and help me talk to the rest of this industry and talk us off the cliff, help us to get to know each other better, these industries. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so let me start with just a definition of UX and, and also a definition of CX, just so we can gather together on the same page. Um. So UX, user experience, is traditionally the more psychological side of product experience and service design. So we care about happier, more loyal customers, ease of learning and use, uh, better usability, again, making things easy to learn, easy to use, intuitive, and of course, accessibility so that it works for everyone. Even if there are situational, temporary or permanent situations for someone that might be disabilities or just situations that are vision, hearing, cognitive, emotional or motion or other. Um, So basically, UX is typically the digital interfaces, so when someone says UX, they're usually thinking screens, uh, websites, apps, smartwatches, Tesla screens, thermostats, Um, but when we think CX, it's kind of the umbrella term, customer experience, and typically that is all the experiences that our customer has with our company or brand so that if you're a hotel your website your app might be the digital experience and of course going to your freaking hotel and trying to check in and hanging out in the room this of course is the is the whole rest of that experience with the brand and the two are bleeding together more and more we don't think of the website in a vacuum and disregard the experience we had in the hotel so these are really quite uh connected so i tend to be kind of converging the terms more and more so Hmm. um, so that is uh, that side of it many of us in UX um, are not artists Um, many uh, I mean to be great in UX you need a lot of certain traits but a key one is a knowledge of cognitive psychology Uh, so sometimes you hear people who are artists say well I do UX and really they mean they like to lay out web pages and screens and they may or may not be good at it but in reality true UX is done with 100% care for the customer, deep customer research. So we're not guessing and assuming and, uh, you know, qualified, talented people who really get cognitive psychology and then, of course, can create experiences and interfaces that make sense to you, because if they don't just work for you, what have we done?
1: Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) That's the the short version. No kidding. so one of the things that we've got you know in, in the subject of today is is um, taking a little bit aim, I, I guess, at the idea of design thinking. Um, and we've yeah. definitely had a few conversations on idiotic about design thinking and, and folks you know seeing influences or, or ways to bring that into. Uh, you know what we do as instructional designers.
0: It's mild um, and trendy right now.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. It
0: is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um
1: maybe let's talk a little bit quick uh, just to set some ground, I guess, with what design thinking is or what your perspective of what design thinking is. Um and then we can compare uh, you know the UXCX stuff versus design thinking and, and go from there.
2: Yeah. And of course my question would be what's your definition of design thinking?
0: I hate it when our guests stump us like this, you know. So like... that's,
2: but that's even my point, like end scene, you know, we can end this right here. Do you have a sound effect, you know, and we're done, clap, you know. So the reality is that you, you guys, me, the 115 people hanging out with us live right now, the people watching this later on, there's a chance that all of us have a different definition of design mm-hmm. thinking. And what happened is it was brought about 2007-ish, 2009-ish, and it was meant to mean more of the UX process and approach. But what happened over time was that it got severely watered down. And now it's at the point where, in my opinion, it has become completely meaningless. And it has become a way, way watered down version of what UX professionals would do. It wouldn't make sense if I said, you know what? I got a certificate in e-learning thinking, you know, I'm, I'm an e-learning thinker. Uh, (laughs) I think about customers. I think about what they have to learn and I make training for them.
1: It's almost on that level but that's what we do <laughs>
2: but that's but that's right. severely boiled yeah that's severely boiled down and it's missing yeah. the depth and quality of your practice and craft it's missing the depth and quality of the practice of my craft and so uh design thinking by its current definition which seems to keep changing um is a uh, five-step process that if i remember correctly is uh empathize um which is a giant pile of crap because many Many people are low on empathy, and we cannot make them higher empathy. If you're not sure if you can increase or create empathy among people, go to Facebook, say something <laughs> political, and you let me know if you were able to create empathy. <laughs> um, so, number, step one, magically create empathy among people who don't have it. Uh, step two, define the problem. Uh, which takes on different meanings in different places. For some, it's understanding the work I've done, the good research that I've done and and understanding it. In other places, that's guess at the customer's experience and make some cool maps and put sticky notes on walls. Then step three is typically ideate, where we're gonna dream up what we wanna build for this customer. Step four is typically prototype and step five is typically test. Um, But we're at the point where these really have now mimic design sprints, which is something else, something else I don't like. And so the problem is that design thinking, in my opinion, is a cottage industry and certificate factory where everybody can claim they're a design thinker. But the problem is if you get a certificate in design thinking, did anyone check your ability to empathize? No, you just got a trophy. Did anyone check if any of your ideation was good, if your ideas are kind of crap? Did anyone test your ability to prototype? And as for testing your prototype, did anyone check your ability to plan a test, execute a test, and interpret a test? So the problem is everyone gets a trophy. Everyone's a design thinker. I've never met someone yet who said, you know what? I'm not a design thinker, magically, everybody's (laughs) a design. It's like horoscopes. You know, I don't know if you, I'm a big Monty Python fan. They have a horoscope sketch where it's like, you good day. Oh, that, that's, that's very good.
1: Um, <laughs> oh, that's me. That there, fits me to a T. Yes.
2: Exactly. Oh my God. That's, <laughs> yes. that's called it horoscope syndrome. Like design thinker. Yeah, that's me. Empathy. Oh, I'm full of it. Oh, you're full of it. <laughs> so, uh, so the problem with design thinking is, is what is it? It's sand running through my fingers. I don't know what it is today. I don't know what it is tomorrow. And I don't know what it's going to be to you or to someone else. Um, now, uh, Lita is saying, what if we were e-learning deep thinkers? I I like it. Um, so what I tell people is, I think the most important thinker you can be is a critical thinker. Um, I saw a guy post to Facebook and he, he ran a, like a marketing agency. And he said, you know, before design thinking, let's say a bicycle client would come to me and the bicycle client would say, I think our bike needs this part redesigned and we're the agency. So we would take what the client said and we would redesign the bike part. And there you go, new bike part. But thanks to design thinking, Now we check to see if the redesigned bike part is really what the customer needed. And I'm going, holy poop on a stick. This is like all I do for a living. This is critical thinking. This isn't design thinking. It's critical thinking to have a customer come in and say, 'This, this is what I think I want. And then for me to say, Well, hold on, let's check into that a little bit more. Maybe that isn't what you need. And really, as e-learning designers, you should be doing that as well. You probably all hate being order takers. You you probably want to have some creativity, some flexibility, some critical thinking. Why are we writing this e-learning? What are we trying to teach people? What hole is it filling? And so... Critical thinking is still the winner. Sadly, I don't know (laughs) of anyone giving certificates in it, so it's not a cottage industry, but I just think design thinking is kind of not a thing. We we can't even all agree on what it is.
0: yeah so that's a that's a, so we've opened up a big uh, a big topic here today and I'm sure we've ruffled a few feathers in the in the chat but uh so don't and that's okay it was kind of by design I used my design thinking to decide this might be a good thing for us to talk about today mm-hmm. because I guys, did you important. see the
2: article did you see the article that was in fortune uh, on their website newsletter it said um Uh, design thinking coronavirus could be solved with design thinking so i wrote an article called design thinking jumps shark claims it can solve coronavirus and the article was like the article was like, well, you know, the Chinese government really should empathize more. And I was like, oh crap, he, what is this? Like, don't you just wanna punch that person in the face? Come on. Had they,
0: had they design thought a little better, they never would have had this happen. <laughs> darn
2: it. Woody had gone to the police.
0: <laughs> I like that. Design thinking has jumped the shark. I believe this to be true. But I think so, so it, it, this takes us background full circle. So after we've ruffled some feathers, we have to kind of put all those feathers back together for people before we get done today, and that might take what a little you? bit of a little bit of time for folks. And I think one of the things that I thought was was really exciting to to listen to Tatawan talk to her user experience designer when I had that conversation with the two of them, and it, to to me, like it just every interaction was just. Fascinating to me. And I just wanted the whole world of you know e-learning and instructional design to be watching how this was happening and the learning that was occurring between the the two of them. And I that's why I was like, this has just got to be discussed more because it wasn't about design thinking, it wasn't about just user experience, it wasn't just about instructional design, it was helping the audience the customer everything was we're helping them how do we do that how do we focus on that and what does that mean and I think when everybody comes together uses their expertise to support that main goal and goes after it doing what they do I think we and put all the buzzwords aside you know I I think that's when the magic really starts to happen
2: Yes, I would have to agree and thanks to all the people in the chat, Judy and others who are writing some fun things uh, in there. Uh, I can't even keep up with it. I have to get my my studio mouse and try to scroll back, but um, So, yeah, so Stephanie had written needs analysis and in UX, we very often say task analysis, or some people are saying jobs to be done. And I think that that's at the core of a lot of this, because if you are a a learner taking an e-learning course, workshop, class, whatever you want to call it, um, you're there for a reason. There's something you need to know. Now I tend to, I'm not an e-learning expert at all. So I'm going to say all kinds of made up stuff and you'll correct me. But I tend to think of these as being in two buckets one bucket is kind of compliance training there's things we have to train people on and there's no way around it we have to tell them not to sexually harass each other we have to tell them not to give each other their passwords you know we we have to do this because of some sort of compliance reason then to me there's the other bucket of learning which tends to be you know we created a system that's not that easy to use um but we'll fix it in training have you heard that one kids (laughs) um
0: Chris, you don't hear thing- that at all, do you? <laughs> no, Chris no. Like,
2: flashback, flashback, flashback. Um. So you know, we there's the fix it in training part, and then that that's when you guys get mobilized, and it's like, okay, you know, are we making videos? Are we making uh, knowledge bases? You know, what are we doing now? And so. The, so there's a lot of pieces here. So obviously one is that needs and, and task analysis. And we can always look at the needs analysis of the stakeholders that are coming to us with the project. But in the UX realm, we are super focused much more on the the user and the customer than the stakeholder. Because we know sometimes, sometimes stakeholders are just full of crap and they're very biased and we have to kind of distill it. So, um, so I would be looking at what is the task someone's trying to accomplish. Now, if it's the compliance training, it's get me through this as fast as possible you know make Mm -hmm. make the buttons big and easy to click on i want a radio button this big i don't want the 10 pixel radio button where my mouse can't find the spot to click on it maybe i even want to tab through it with my uh, tab key or because of a a disability Mm -hmm. or situational issue so Task analysis, important to understand what those people are trying to do. They don't care if they remember next year what percentage of people were sexually harassed at their job. But when you are trying to teach people a system, to me, this is where uh, there's a much stronger potential for partnership with your your UX team and department because I would love for e-learning to come to me and go, "We're, we're supposed to make this four hour course on how to use this system when is the system going to change again? Why is this so hard to use? What if this could be a two hour training? And there's some great calculators on Human Factors International uh, website where they will let you calculate what is the ROI to a company if training didn't take as long or didn't happen as often. And while I'm not looking to put e-learning people out of a job, because we'll always need you, could we streamline some of this stuff, making the experience better for you. So you're like, I can't believe we have to teach people this garbage that hopefully they're gonna fix in a month and make it better for the customer. I mean, because we have to remember in many cases, people have a short attention span. They don't want to go through a lot of these uh, modules and things like that. So. That's where we can really partner together where I can say, what are we trying to fix here? Okay, what if we could spin up a project where we made that aspect of the tool easier to use?
1: Yeah. I mean, if the tool or, or, or you know, what's been uh, Human created. Human
2: Factors International. Aaron says, what was that site? Yeah. Human Factors International. And then it's like slash cool stuff slash <laughs> ROI dot something we shouldn't be using anymore, like ASPX or something. So just Google <laughs> Human Factors International ROI calculators. Chris, sorry.
1: Yeah, no. I, I, you know, if, if, if the tool uh, or the thing that, uh, that people have to use is actually a cause of, of confusion... Um, then training is uh, it is not the solution, not the best solution anyway. Being able to actually uh, make things make more sense right off the bat re- reduces slash eliminates the need for the for the training factor for sure.
2: Yeah, and that would really be everybody's dream because you guys know when's the last time you bought something and read that manual? <laughs>
1: you know, we, well, we,
0: it's I think different. I've got one sitting around.
2: Some here. of us. Yeah. Some of us are manual readers. I I can be that person, but even our smartphones no longer come with a manual. They expect it to just be intuitive. Totally. And the funny thing is, I'm an Android user. If you hand me an iPhone, I am like 90-year-old grandma. I'm like, <laughs> where's where's the back button on this thing? And, and, you know, but everyone says, oh, Apple, it's so easy to use. Oh, my God. And But like, give it to an Android person. And I'm like,
1: you're I like funny. the dog.
2: Yeah, the dog meme. I don't know what I'm doing.
1: <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm the opposite. My, uh, I grab my son's Android, and I'm like, I don't. I, I yeah, I have a, a very. Right. And it's, it's 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 that sort of reaction. Like, what the hell is hell even is this? You know, yeah. literally, <laughs> and, it's like right. here, I'm here, here, a
0: Windows right. 10 screen for the first time.
1: Here, yeah. here, you you Richard. find that thing and show me.
2: Exactly. And I'm that way with all the Apple stuff. And so, but the funny thing is ask the user of that thing and they'll go, well, my Android is really intuitive. My iPhone is really intuitive and they've lost perspective. And I think it's easy for a lot of us to lose that perspective. But if we can take that user centered design perspective, that human centered design perspective, not design thinking, don't say it. If we can take that UCD perspective that all of us in UX naturally have. Um, then we can say, okay, well, forget about what I do. Forget about what I think. What does Sally in Alabama think? What is she doing? What's her perspective of this stuff? And if we don't know, send some UX researchers to go talk to all the Sally in Alabamas that have to take them, the Jim in Spokane's, and learn, or the Mary Ellen on Long Island. Hello, Mary Ellen, how are you? Uh, to find, out, find out who these people are. How do they think? What are they doing now? What are their workarounds? You know, watch them take one of your e-learning courses and you'll watch what they're really doing and you'll see how you can make it better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hard in a lot, there's so many different situations that trainers find themselves in. And I think one of the things that is, um, I think a good route, if you're in a large enough company that has a UX team or, uh, you know, and you're on a large instructional designer training team like, like Tatouan is, well, not large, but large enough for her to find the U- <laughs> the UX folks and to connect with them. I think for some reason, executives or companies or whatever, they're okay with saying, oh, we'll send the UX team out to do research. but. Why on earth would our training team want to do that? Like for us as instructional designers we're like, yes, we do that too, but nobody that hires us to do stuff, even if it's all internal, has that in their head. So when we say, you know, stakeholder, we really need to do a very thorough needs analysis. They say, "Why can't you just put some powerpoints together and and figure out and just just do we know the our training?" Customers. Yeah, but then the say the UX team goes to them or they go to the UX team and they say, do what you do and the UX team says, okay, we have to go do some cognitive psychological research on our users and they're like, yeah, of course you do. Go and go and take care of that and do that. And we're like, wait a minute that's what we wanted sure. to do so
2: first of all we are rarely allowed to do that we are almost always circumvented excluded and overruled by product and engineering
0: but oh, well that's that's, another story. oddly so, that's good to know Yeah, know not, a right. oh,
2: oh yeah i have so many friends who are like i'm not allowed to talk to customers but the engineers are calling up customers and going what do you want this thing to do and i'm going oh god that's not user research so yes the dream would be the partnership what if you came, what if you and I went out and did research together? You looked at it from your angle. I looked at it from my angle and we compare notes later. You know, there's no reason why it has to be just one of us. Honestly, just one of us would be an upgrade from what happens at a lot of our companies now. But both of us together would be great because we this is a, hopefully a partnership and we might have different angles of things and, and learn even more.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, two heads are better than one. And, and now too, I'm pictur- too
2: smart, relevant. Hit.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I'm kind of picturing the vultures on uh, in Bugs Bunny, uh, but anyway, at the moment,
2: everyone's freaking out that I'm touching my own face. First of all, people, I'm in my own house, in a <laughs> in a vocal booth. I mean, like, I've washed my hands before starting this. What do you think I've been touching? <laughs> where, where do you think I am? Seriously, yes, I'm touching my face, but it's it's what you did before touching your face that matters
0: i think people miss the point of the whole touching the face mm. thing could this be a ux problem is this a is this a is, this, is there a user experience problem with our hands during all of this i think not to take us off topic it's, or anything but
2: yeah I, it's well it's funny because it's um you know it's like don't think of the elephant you know so as soon as you say don't touch your face everyone's like oh god oh god my face is on fire um so
0: all it's, it, it's, it's like crazy it's, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. Say,
2: but yes. What do you? All I've been touching is like my cup. Like I've only been touching the things in my house. People have stayed alive this long. Okay, we've made it. I'm in Italy. I've, we've been under lockdown for a month. Uh, I, I've somehow survived so far, it, even touching my face. <laughs> so, um, so we have a question. How do you bridge the age group gap? I assume you mean learners of different ages. Um, In UX, Mm. what we do is we typically don't divide people up necessarily by demographics. We tend to divide people up by needs, habits, motivations, and fears. So if a 60-year-old has similar needs, habits, motivations, and fears than the 40-year-old, then we don't necessarily see them as separate groups or personas. We would only separate out people if there's a real difference. So for example, how do I design for a 60-year-old versus a 40-year-old? 40 year old in a vacuum, I wouldn't design differently for them. But if I learned that our 60 year olds are not tech savvy, they have more fears about a certain thing that other people don't. Now I've got something that I can design for, but just because someone is a certain age, like I saw some crappy UX work recently and they tried to make personas, which is our our customer archetypes. And they had put like, well, this person is 26 and multi-race. And at first, I was like, "Ooh, I'm a little uncomfortable reading that." And then I was like, "Well, do you design differently for white people? Like, <laughs> you know, what's if you don't design differently for uh, a demographic or something, then to me, it it doesn't belong in in the documentation or, or in your in your own mental model as as a group. So I wouldn't separate. We don't separate out people typically by a homeowner, not a homeowner, male, female, other. You know, it's it's really research with a, a broad uh, cross section of customers and see where the patterns rise and sometimes age matters and sometimes it doesn't.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, Becky, you're
2: yeah. treasure is it okay that I'm reading these and yes totally.
1: To them? Yeah. yeah. Yeah for sure. we love to we love to bring in the comments from the uh from the chat. Telling me questions not to touch my face stuff. is
2: not empathy. It is <laughs> it is
1: he does like... have a wink he does have a wink in there. <laughs> Okay. Oh, oh, my- I don't have my glasses on. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no. it's, uh,
2: yeah, it's yeah, not it's not empathy. It's uh, you're trying to control me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so yes, and, and other questions. Me. I'm trying to read these. I'm trying yep. to read these as fast as they come. But uh, other questions, shoot them. Go ahead.
1: Um, so Thomas tossed in a, 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 a thought slash stuff uh, up a bit, a bit, and I'm just going to read that out. We need an organization wide performance excellence framework i.e. something that will force us to implement sound processes and reevaluate them regularly like the Baldridge performance excellence framework that's that's a new one to me um, mm-hmm. instead of thinking that training can overcome a bad process or procedure yeah i think that echoes a lot of um, a lot of at least the, the the thoughts that we've been sharing here that uh, that sometimes you know training is a a bandage or um, a, a layer on top of something that uh, maybe the foundation needs to be fixed or maybe it's the better solution would be that the foundation should be fixed. We don't always get that luxury. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, in our world, we have tech debt and we have UX debt. Tech debt is when something goes out and it's just buggy, and then you Mm -hmm. hope the engineers fix it. UX debt is where either because you didn't give your UX people time, money, resources, or you hired crappy UX people, or you had no UX people, or whatever, um, the UX is poor. The user experience, the interface, the the process flows, the steps, the uh, layouts, all of these things are poor. Uh, the organization, I mean, all these things are part of UX. So we call that UX debt. And like tech, debt is supposed to be fixed in a dreamy dream world before it's released to the customer of course ux debt is so rarely paid attention to or fixed i've interviewed a whole bunch of people for my last book uh coincidentally named delta cx and not coincidentally at all um and uh what i found was a lot of people said you know my my company was always happy to budget for things that engineers said they needed but when ux was trying to fly flags and wave flags and go, holy cats, you know, we've got a a poor or suffering or flawed product here. The song was always either, we'll release it to the public and we'll fix it later, never gets fixed later, or we'll cover that in training, in FAQs, or, you know, they'll just contact support. But I say, be selfish for a moment. How many of you guys like to read FAQs, contact support, who loves it? Thank you. Name I can't see. Somebody some guy has no name. Red circle guy. Thank you, Red Circle Guy. Who's Red Circle Guy?
1: Yeah, I just noticed he doesn't have a name in there. Or no, at least. Thank that, you, Red Circle
2: I'm, Guy. He yeah. bought my book.
0: Thank you. John.
2: <laughs> <Sean. laughs> <laughs> yeah. So sign so up because that's not a broken. name. Believe me, we know stuff's broken, but somewhere there is, here's what I tell people, and maybe this will help you guys too. I will arm you with this one. I tell people if our project managers were correctly calculating the costs of projects, including the cost to fix it later, which not only involves product managers, project managers, UX people, visual designers, engineers, but probably involved customer support to deal with all the unhappy people social media managers to deal with all the angry tweets uh you guys to try to put band-aids on it if someone actually calculated all of these costs to break it up front and fix it later somebody's head would roll and something would happen more proactively and earlier but because these always get buried in weird secondary budgets and oh we'll just pause project b to fix project a and we'll put it in the project b budget i think no one wants to admit how much we're lying to ourselves about the real cost of this risk to the company
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, and part of that's just a, a, a massive cultural thing in the tech world. And the phrase, the exact phrase is escaping me. But what's that what's that phrase, um, you know, break things fast and or, or whatever the, you and know, the, the mantra, the the mantra, you know. So, yeah. yeah,
2: it's what. Yeah. So that's I've got I've, I've listed in, in my book of like things we need to stop saying. And it's like, you know, a fail fast or, you know, like break it fast or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Hands up. Who loves when companies release broken stuff to you?
0: Yeah, geez, give you know, it's, bro- it's, please give me the broken one.
2: <laughs> it's something that people say internally to try to make themselves feel better like, "I I shipped it fast. I shipped it fast." You know, la 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 la, yeah. I'm okay. Check you know, off. but it's, it's it it does not soothe our customers it doesn't soothe our customers to say it was a minimum viable product it doesn't soothe our customers to say it was a beta it none of these things soothe the customers and be selfish for a moment think of you it doesn't it doesn't help you it doesn't soothe you so to me all this fail fast and whatever i tell people if you want to fail fast it has to happen during the ux process it has to happen when i'm researching architecting uh, designing, testing, iterating. That's a great time to fail because we haven't had engineers build it yet and we haven't had mm. e-learning people write stuff about it yet. So that's a great time to fail fast, but yet most people use it to mean, give it to the customer, let them trip over it and fall on their faces and then maybe we'll fix it later. But in, in reality, you know, ask engineers, hey engineers, how often does it get fixed later?
1: Mm. well i think um as peter's pointing pointing out that they they're the the practical value of that of this kind of approach which I, I echoes what you're saying is it's 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 maybe a practical value for doing things as you're building to iterate to change to test etc um if you're doing that uh, that right but it should not be the the the, the product release goal yeah so yeah, that said. Beauty-
2: you saying fail fast is about ideation. Hypothetically, if fail fast is about ideation, then it happens during the UX process. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you've released it to the public, that's a little bit past ideation. That is now <laughs> a living, breathing thing. So I think fail fast could be about ideation and about testing different concepts, checking different executions of different ideas, then fail all you like because i mean i work in prototypes i work in ux prototypes i don't code them i use a piece of software called action i don't think that conflicts with anything you guys do it's a ux software um and i'm able to make super fast but highly realistic prototypes hmm. and then i can take it to testing and i can know within hours if my idea has legs if it's flawed and where it's flawed and then i can quickly iterate and we really need cycles of this and that in that case it would be uh in that case fail fast would be okay but so often it's used as like this startupy thing like hey we'll we'll put it out it'll kind of fail we'll do something else uh our companies don't have that type of time or money we're not startups and why are we emulating startups they fail like 95 percent of the time and go out of business why is anybody going we think like a startup Oh, really? You plan to like totally fail and go out of business? Why do we emulate startups? <laughs> They're a freaking mess.
0: Yeah, that's a good that's point. I hadn't faith. thought of it like that before. I, th- I think it's just kind of dreamy to be like a startup, you know? That's the. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's, it's the a adrenaline
2: I've had, a, I've had startups. It's kind of nightmare you know, <laughs> and you're always fighting for investor money. You have to go and memorize your two-minute pitch. It's really not glamorous at all. I did the Silicon Valley startup thing for five years uh, on on the side because you can't make a living out of it. Um, but uh, it's... I don't get it, You know, there are so many startups that fail and people think that's the cool thing, let's copy startups, we'll use minimum viable product, which was for startups, we'll use design sprints, which was mostly cut their teeth on startups. And um, I don't know why we're emulating things startups do when they have, depending upon who you listen to, a 70 to 95% failure rate.
0: What is, um, Mike Simmons was wanting to know what that tool was again, that it's a UX tool.
2: This is a UX prototyping tool and allows you to build clickable, interactive, realistic prototypes. It has a huge learning curve, so I do a lot of training Mm -hmm. on it, but it is called Axure and that's A-X. U R E, so it looks like Microsoft Azure, but it's not. It's got an X, and it's pronounced Axure. They're Axure.com. There is a free trial, um, and uh, but it's monster learning curve because you have to think like a programmer, even though you don't have to write code. So I have to I write like if-else statements so that there are real logical branches and paths, mm-hmm. and there's condi- so there's conditional logic, there's variables. It gets very heady. It is not like a Photoshop
0: type of thing very cool very cool yeah i was just
1: going to say uh, that probably gives us a chance here to uh to bring ourselves into dancing mode a i would l- say
0: a little bit of a wrap up before we yeah. jump into that though really quick can you give us just a, a couple quick tips we've covered a lot of cool practical stuff but if you were to talk to some instructional designers and just give a couple quick tips of what you think maybe we could do differently or better or more like the CX community, what tips would you give before we dance out of here?
2: Um, I think a couple of things. Number one, we make great partners and you don't feel like you have to learn our craft. I mean, if I went and read a book on e-learning, how good would I be at e-learning after that? UX takes years to be really good at. It takes a lot of practice and coaching and mentoring and same for you guys. Your craft has depth, quality and complexity. And so I think one mistake that people make is they get kind of sucked in by a little bit of the bootcamp mentality and they think, you know, I'll just uh, take a couple of Udemy courses on UX and read a book. And I say, good luck. I hope you didn't pick the crappy ones. But then don't imagine that you're now a UX practitioner, you are junior baby micro. And that's why it's best for us to partner um, because I can't learn your craft quickly and you can't learn my craft quickly, but we could work beautifully together.
0: (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today and taking your time. I know you've got to run and get to another podcast that you're going to do. And but uh, it, I've, I've dropped your link in a couple of times if that's enough. But feel free while we're dancing out to drop in your email or any other ways for people to get in touch with you. Or... Just
2: find me at deltacx.com and I go, uh, I live stream many times a week. If you go to deltacx.tv, that'll take you right to my YouTube channel. Please
0: subscribe. Excellent. And we and will LinkedIn do that. Be there. Yeah. Thanks again. This was fun. Hey, you guys, if you want to talk more about all this kind of stuff, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. Use the I-D-I-O-D-C hashtag and let us know about it. We're all sequestered hanging out at home during quarantine, but Idiotic is still here for you every Wednesday morning. Right, Chris?
1: We are indeed. Um, We love dancing and we'll always be here for you.
0: (laughs) Thanks, everyone. And thanks again, Debbie.
2: Thanks to you guys. This was great.
0: Thanks, Debbie. (laughs) We'll <laughs> be